We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. Welcome in to Vern's Hot Stove. Lined into right center field for a hit. Merrifield's going to try to score. A good throw home could get him. Then the throw is... Every Thursday night starting at 6, taking you all the way up to opening day in Cleveland. Slider is lifted to shallow center and back to make a great catch, Nicky Lopez. Live from Surprise, Arizona, here's Royals insider, Josh Furnier. Yeah, good evening. Crazy, uh, crazy times here. Uh, here in Surprise at Surprise Stadium where, man, the, the, the field looks great. Why? For whom? Who knows? Uh, uh, the, the college baseball tournament they have here every year, that, that's over. Uh, I, I know they have a 5K coming through here tomorrow, but, but who knows when Salvador Perez, Whit Merrifield, and the rest arrive, at least at this ballpark. Plenty of them are already in the greater Phoenix area, Scottsdale area. Uh, not necessarily within the confines of Surprise Stadium nor the Kansas City Royals uh, Development Center, their spring training home. And what is? I think this is only the the fourth Vern's Hot Stove of the season. In the in the first few, and what I was hoping to do to start off each and every show was to give you all the news, everything that I'm seeing, that I'm hearing. You know, I'll give you those. Uh, the top five storylines. That's what we did over the first few weeks. But I can't insult you like that. I, I, I know what kind of baseball fans we have in Kansas City. I know what kind of baseball fans listen to this show <laughs> at, at 6 o'clock on a Thursday night. Or on the Odyssey app, listening to the podcast. You know what's going on. You know what the top story is. I mean, honestly, you could go back and listen to the, the first Vern's Hot Stove and the top five storylines that I had prior to coming to Surprise Arizona. Those are still the top five storylines pertaining to the Kansas City Royals. You know, the, the Mondesi Dozier, Witt, Nicky, Bobby stuff. No, nothing's changed there. The Young Arms, Free Agency, Mike Matheny, J.J. Piccolo. It's all the same. The only storyline right now is the lockout. But I've talked all week on every show about the lockout I'm sick of the lockout <laughs> um, it's I got, no, I'm, not, I'm not even gonna whine or complain or bitch moan I'm not doing any of it I'm, I'm not even mad to be honest with you I'm not mad about the lockout because I understand both sides I really do and I, I don't want to and I don't plan on discussing it but when I, when I say something like that, let me address it. I mean, I, I do understand both sides. The owners are acting like businessmen, completely focused on making as much money as possible in their business. I can understand that. Yeah, capitalism, America, all that, right? I also understand the players. 
Right? The players are like so many of us wish we could in our jobs. They're sticking together in hopes of a more equitable split of the billion-dollar industry that they are most vital to. They are the talent, the irreplaceable talent. That's why you and I, that's why we don't do this in our jobs, because I know myself, I am very replaceable. But Salvador Perez, Whit Merrifield, all those names I just said, they're irreplaceable. And they're making a stand for what's fair. How do you disagree with that? So again, yeah, I I understand both sides. I'm always going to side with labor. Um, again, I, I don't want to talk about it. Now, l- let me bring you here to Surprise Arizona, and I'll be honest with you. You know, the, the whole feeling out here, it's changed. It changed Tuesday when the commissioner canceled the first two series of the season. I can't speak for everyone, of course. I know the Royals would not want me speaking for them. Uh, but 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 there there was a, a certain feeling, uh, palpable feeling around camp prior to Tuesday's cancellation. There certainly was a feeling of, you know, it's okay. You know, we're fine. This is fine. We still have baseball. Minor leaguers getting some shine. Big leaguers are going to be here soon, and and normal baseball is right around the corner. Normal baseball, here we come. I mean, if I could be honest with you, it's been kind of fun. Not following Bobby Wood Jr. around, uh, learning the names of so many of these prospects, or learning the faces. I have known the names. I had no idea what they looked like. Learning the faces of the prospects. I've enjoyed it. I'm a baseball nerd. I, I can get into it. But I was getting into it because there was an end on the horizon. Eventually, I was going to see superstars walking in, like Salvador Perez. Maybe future superstars, like an Adalberto Mondesi. Maybe even an Andrew Benatendi. But but then the first two series of the season were canceled. And now now I'm, I'm just at minor league spring training and nobody here that has connections to the big league club can even talk about the big league club so yeah you're you're rubbing elbows with the front office and maybe around town you run into a member of 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 the coaching staff but they can't talk about anything that you're interested in that i'm interested in now honestly here here's how it goes out here on a nightly basis and i'll 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 fill you in because Fans are not allowed to watch what amounts to minor league spring training because of the lockout. The Royals are trying, understandably so, to not uh, present minor leaguers as replacement players. So so the players normally arrive, let's say, 8 o'clock in the morning. Get your test and your breakfast and and whatever else. A stretch and conditioning at 9 o'clock, running their sprints. I was taking that in last week. Bobby Witt Jr. lost the first sprint, won every single one after it. I mean, those are the things that I enjoy. That, that's why I have no issue watching minor league baseball. If I'm watching baseball of, of any level, high school to the pros, you know, those, there are those intricacies, those aspects of the game that often go unnoticed who's leading 
every drill. Uh, who remains focused even when it's not their turn in the cage or it's not their rep in the field? I love watching that stuff. And yeah, Bobby Witt Jr. has been, been shining as I zero in on those aspects of his game. 9.30 normally, that, that's when they start. Uh, you go to the cage and then after you know, 15, 20 minutes, you go work on your base dealing with Rusty Koontz and then you move over to your defensive rotations and you have Mike Jershley and Eddie Rodriguez and Christian Cologne and uh, so many of, of, of the minor league coaching staff you know, working on the I love watching infield, so I'm dialed into that. I'm, I'm watching the infield drills the other day. Bobby Witt Jr. at third base, playing well off that third base bag, and they're working on the backhand play, the, the hard-hit ground ball right up that third base foul line, but Bobby's playing well off the bag. So uh, I can't remember who was hitting him ground balls. Uh, it doesn't matter, regardless who's hitting him. Uh, hard hit ground ball up that third baseline. Bobby Witt Jr. ranges to his right, backhands it as he crosses into foul territory. And keep in mind, the play is at second. This isn't a 5-3 ground out that they're working on. They're working on 5-4-3 double plays. Backhanded, momentum carrying you into foul territory, 5-4-3 double play. Bobby backhands it, momentum taking him into foul territory, and with his back towards the second base bag, I hope you can picture this, with his back towards the second base bag being uh, carried into that third base dugout, he only slightly shifts his shoulders back towards the field, never turns his head towards the second base bag, but unleashes a bullet to second base, perfectly placed on the bag, turned over to first base. We got a 5-4-3 double play. I don't think I've seen a better defensive play since I've been out here. So they normally do that up until the live BP starts. Uh, one more observation, one more name to keep an eye on. I mean, obviously you'll be keeping an eye on Bobby Witt Jr. But I'll tell you what, man. As I dial in on the 23-year-old second baseman out of Illinois, Michael Massey. Now, he won a gold glove last year, a minor league gold glove, just like Nick Prado did. Um, Massey. A uh, fourth-round pick back in 2019. The focus that this kid shows uh, in every single drill, there's just no... Now, it's fun. You could, you could tell Michael Massey's the type of kid that slept in his baseball pants when he got his first pair as a kid, and, and you can't have enough players like that. Um, but even when it's not his rep in the field, even when it's not his turn in that batting cage, this kid is dialed in and put on... And, yes, I say this with the knowledge of what I've watched from Bobby Witt Jr. and Suli Matias. Michael Massey put on, had one of the best rounds of BP that I've seen since I've been out here. Keep your eye and remember that name. If you're not already familiar with it, this kid is a ball player. One other name, and I know I've mentioned him before, but to go along with those intangibles, another 23-year-old, Kale Emsoff, that catcher that the Royals got in the 2020 draft, this catcher, stout, you know, you've, you've heard the, the David Ross comparison for him. I can't stress how impressed I've been with his, I, I don't even want to say it's, it's leadership. You're, you're 23. You're just figuring out what you're doing out here. Um, but just first in line, uh, first to, to take the rep. 
Um, love to see that leadership, especially for a guy behind the dish, because as he grows, as he matures, you have to imagine uh, that voice is going to get even louder. Uh, that presence on the field is going to become even more noticeable. Uh, as far as the live BPs, that, that normally happens. You know, let's say if um, stretches at 9 and the cage work and all that begins at 9.30, it's about 11 Quarter after 11, we start the live BPs where you start to see some of these arms that are auditioning to stick around or to maybe get a job elsewhere. Guys that are not minor leaguers uh, in in the truest sense, but they're not big leaguers, that they're not on a 40-man roster. Guys that are out here grinding either for a job in Kansas City or maybe to get picked up in the Rule 5 draft or sign as a minor league free agent and get a big league invite and earn a spot on the big league roster. Now, Andres Stoliet, very impressive sinker-slider combination. Three right-handers really stood out to me from watching these Royals BPs. The kid that they got in the Danny Duffy trade, Zach Williman, a 6'2 right-hander, 25 years of age out of Tulsa. And then Jace Vines, just built, 6'3", 240 pounds. Now he's 27 years old, a fourth-round pick. Back in 2016, but sometimes it takes guys a little bit longer to get it figured out. And I'll tell you what, that fastball gets on you in a hurry. Those are really the only names, those kind of uh, tweener arms that I think can help this team in 2022. I was asked by Fesco earlier this week, are you watching anyone that you think is going to make an impression at, on the big league, at, at the big league level this season? And, you know, outside of uh, an arm or two or three in Bobby Witt Jr., I think the answer is no, which brings me back to that original point of watching minor league baseball because there are really two camps here. It's guys that are fighting for their lives to get in a, on a big league roster this year, and then it's guys that are 20, 21, 22 that are still years away that will be grinding it out this year. Um, you know, Quad Cities, Double uh, A Northwest Arkansas, uh, quite a few names I could give you there. I, I don't know how dialed in you are to the Columbia Fireflies or the Quad Cities River Bandits, uh, but they're going to have some ball players again in 2022 when minor league baseball begins in just over one month from right now. Uh, but but those guys that are the, the, the youngsters, they you'll hear me reference the backfields. That just means they got to walk longer to get to their practice. That's where those guys head for the most part. A little bit longer of a walk in those metal spikes from the clubhouse back to the backfield. Oh, and one more story I got to pass along. Uh, Foster Griffin, uh, terrific young man. Um, you remember him, debuted on his birthday, pitched his tail off, but then had to leave due to an injury, ended up needing what, Tommy John surgery. Just a heartbreaking story, a very baseball story. You work as a first-round pick your whole life to finally grind to the big leagues, and when you get there at the age of, what, 25? Something like that happens. Uh, yeah, Bobby Witt Jr. apparently was not sobbing for Foster Griffin because he absolutely brutalized Foster Griffin in a, what is it, 2-2 pitch? In a live BP, he sent that thing a cool 430 feet over the left center field wall. Bobby Witt Jr. Uh, just stands out. And I that shouldn't come as a surprise as I describe this as minor league spring training. And Bobby Witt Jr. more than likely is going to finish in the top three for American League Rookie of the Year whenever and if 
the season starts. So on the field, normally out here at Surprise at 9.30 in the morning, and the guys are walking off at 1.15, 1.30. And then I'm sitting around going, all right, is anyone interesting? Does anyone really want to? Oh, oh there we go, Paul Gibson. Ooh, I got some questions for you, Christian Cologne. Rusty Coons, Mitch Meyer, uh, Bobby Witt Jr. If, you have, if you've missed any of those interviews that we've done in the past or we do tonight, you'll be able to find them on the Vern on Baseball podcast on the Odyssey app or at 610sports.com. I'll give you some other names that are standing out to me and to um, the men and women in the front office of the Kansas City Royals. I'll give you those names before we get out of here at 7 o'clock. Um, but thank, thank God for these minor leaguers out here. And I don't mean for me and my entertainment. I mean for the people of Surprise Arizona because these kids are all Surprise has right now. This is their big time. This is their money-making time. And, you know, for as much as you and I uh, gripe and complain and get angry about the lockout and the billionaire owners and, uh, you know, ball players that are playing a kid's game or however you want to spin that, the only people that are suffering right now are the people that depend on spring training. So, you know, let the players and the owners whine all they want, man. Be, be in here and, and just a different feeling not only at the complex but throughout the city. Just not the same kind of surprise buzz that you may be used to if you're down here. Now, now you might scoff at that because, you know, surprise Arizona, act like it's some booming metropolis. No, but if you've been here for a Royal Spring training, you see the KC logo. You see that Texas Rangers T all over the place. You see families and smiles, and it's just not the same this year. Uh, so we'll give you some more names coming up in a little bit, other observations and highlights from this week out here at Royal Spring Training. But coming up next, some great stories from the Royal Senior Director of Pitching, uh, a guy that shared a clubhouse with names like Derek Jeter, Jack Morris, Doc Gooden, Brett Saberhagen, Don Mattingly, and more. I get to nerd out a bit with him. It's Paul Gibson. It's coming up after this. You're listening to Vern's Hot Stove. Thursday night starting at 6 and available on demand on the Odyssey app. 610 Sports Radio. Here in his 36th season of professional baseball, 19 of them as a player. Big league career with the Tigers, Mets, and New York Yankees. Pleased to be joined by the Royals' senior director of pitching, the lefty Paul Gibson, joining us. Uh, now, I want to talk about your playing career because your playing career, especially those years in Detroit, line up with uh, me at a, a younger age. Uh, falling in love with the game of baseball because of those Detroit Tigers teams as a young man growing up in Michigan. So we'll, we'll talk all about the, the playing career, the big league debut in Kansas City. Uh, but I want to begin with uh, your current role and, and connecting with the so very many different type of uh, arms and personalities that you interact with. Uh, what what moment, what story from your career uh connects best across the generations great question so i got drafted by cincinnati back in the big red machine day 
and I walked into spring training the first year and I saw the amount, the volume of players, volume of pitchers. And I remember as a high school kid what I felt like in that, in that setting. And I can see that same look in a lot of guys' eyes, even the college players when they, when they come to their, their first spring training. So for me, messaging and communication and relationships are the foundation of anything. Uh, and I believe that uh, building that foundation through relationships and trust uh, provides results and a good two-way communication. So certainly that, that was the beginning of it. I had no idea back in that day that I'd be in this kind of position at this time. Um, later on in my career, double uh, A with the Tigers, double A with the Twins, I started to see things through a different lens and what players that were struggling, what they went through, players that were injured, players that were doing great, players that were not doing so good. And I always, always felt like there could be a little more. You know, we could do a little more. And uh, it, when I got to the Yankees in 93, I was there in 93. In 94, we had really good pitch. In 92, and with the Mets, we had Gooden, Saberhagen, Sid Fernandez, David Cohn. We had top-line starters. So from that end, I learned what it looked like, you know, uh, to be around guys in that kind of volume. So piecing it all together through the years. Um, and being around Billy Connors and Mel Stottlemyre, Billy Muffet, Roger Craig, guys that I had as pitching coaches along the way that uh, had a huge impact on me. You talk about the, the messaging and communication and that being the foundation of, of trust and, and relationship building over your career. What, what have you found as uh, key? What are, what are the keys uh, to, to getting to a place where you can get that little bit more out of a guy? Yeah, exactly. So relatable topics, the lifestyle, off-the-field hobbies, things that put, put you at ease to, to be able to converse, whether it be in the dugout, in the clubhouse, at the restaurant, in the hotel, all those little things that just – grow a relationship and and uh, <clears throat> players want honesty and to be able to be really honest with them you have to be on praise them when they're doing the right thing and be on them when they're doing the wrong thing and so to be able to to be honest with them you have to have a relationship because without that they're not going to trust you enough to take the seriousness of the message and uh, and the other side of it is caring about their health caring about their the way they go about their lifestyle and things like that I think in the beginning it's not as easy these days because of social media and having so much education in college on um, different habits that they they form and and the way they go about their daily routine and the bullpen and so on so it takes a while to get to know the college guys especially because they've been around a lot of great mentors themselves and we're not necessarily looking to rewrite the book on pitching. We're just looking to tap into each guy's abilities uh, to the highest degree that we can. Yeah, and, and some of these guys coming from uh, the, these big programs where they've bought into to their coaching staff, I'm sure the last thing they want to hear, uh, last thing they're really excited to embrace would be a total overhaul and a, and a 
completely different thinking coaching staff or front office. Exactly. And, you know, there's a lot of factors. Uh, a lot of guys come to us with uh, with a really, really good skill set, and then others come to us like a piece of clay that we've got to mold a little bit. Then you've got junior college guys, you've got high school guys, everybody, you know, the Latin American guys. So you got to really be prepared and have a plan for each of them. And they help dictate and they help write that plan. You mentioned being that wide-eyed kid in your first camp, joining the big red machine Cincinnati Reds organization. Uh, wh- when does that wear it o- wear off, the, the wide-eyedness? Uh, I can tell you that probably through the minor leagues it started to wear away. Uh, when I got to AAA, I started to get a little wide-eyed again because I was around more big leaguers, and then when I got to the big leagues it was like, wow, you know, uh, you got to see the pace of the game and how quick and easy guys do things at that level on a daily basis. So, it, you know, it was sort of a a wow moment again for me going back 10 years before that when I started in the minor leagues. So, yeah, you know, I, I feel like you learn something every day in this game. So I try to come in with open ears and open eyes every day and learn from the guys that are around me and learn from the players. Well, speaking of that minor league career, uh, drafted in 78, debut in 88. I've talked about this with uh, Rex Hudler, Whit Merrifield, the the perseverance needed uh, to to power through. Uh, What is it about yourself? What is it about those you surround yourself with uh, that, that allowed you to push through uh, 10 years in the minor leagues when, when there has to be those moments of, hey, well, you know, when's my turn? Uh, I'm going to credit two people in particular. Um, my wife, and we got married at a young age, and uh, so she pushed me a lot. Um, she was with me for the last seven years of those 10 in the minor leagues. Uh, without her support, I wouldn't have probably made it. Um, and a pitching coach by the name of John Hiller, who was an all-time great reliever for the Tigers in the 70s. And he had me as a pitching coach in 87 in Toledo. And it was a career-changing year for me. I won 14 or 15 games as a starter. Um, and he just got me to look at the game completely differently. I was trying to survive instead of taking hold of my abilities. And so that really... Without that year, it probably ends at another year or so, um, which was a long run in the minor leagues. But at any rate, I, I never really – I had a few moments where it was like, eh, i got to get out of this. But I never wanted to turn on the TV and see somebody that I thought that I was able to compete with. So Yeah. Now that perseverance uh, pays off. Big league debut, wearing that old English D, in Kansas City. Now I looked it all up. Uh, I know how amazing the story is, uh, but but I want to hear you retell it. The big league debut in Kansas City. So we opened in Boston, and I didn't get in. And so we go to Kansas City. I'm pretty sure I'm going to get in one of these days. I didn't get in. I don't think I got in the first two days. And uh, then I, I, I got warmed up a couple times in Boston. <clears throat> and then I got in in Kansas City. The first batter is George Brett. And uh, 
it's when the K was uh, artificial turf, and it was a little wet um, from either an earlier afternoon rain or or it just never really dried out completely. First pitch was a ball, then a strike, and then <clears throat> I think the count was one and two, and I threw him a fastball that he probably should have hit into the fountains. He scorched it back up the middle and went right in my glove, and uh, so it was a one to three. So that was my first uh, f- first appearance, first batter in the big leagues. Yeah, and it was a one run game, and it's in the bottom of the seventh inning. Um, George Brett looking to break the game open with two on and two out. It's I just can't imagine a, a more difficult spot to be put in. And then in the second inning, uh, the, the 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 next frame, the eighth, walk Tartable. He advances to second on a ground out from Jim Eisenreich. Uh, and Frank White grounds out to the left side, which keeps Tartable at second. Oh, I looked it all up. And then you intentionally walk Bo Jackson and get the, the ground out to get out of it. Um, so so what, what does Sparky Anderson say when he, when he calls you in? What, is, what does Captain Hook say when he hands you the ball and says, all right, here's George Brett? Um, you know, he talked to me like he would have talked to me if I was 21 or 22. A uh, tremendous amount of respect for the things he did for me and the way he took care of me uh, the first year in the big leagues and gave me snippets along the way and how to handle different situations, whether it be the media, whether it be things in Detroit, uh, helped me buy my first house in Detroit, helped me get a car um, from Art Moran Pontiac up in, <laughs> up in uh where would it be? Bloomfield, I guess. Uh, but anyway, Sparky was a very uh, caring guy. Um, a lot of what you see around here was what Sparky was about off the field. Children's Hospital every night. Um, took really good interest, a lot of interest in his players. Um, veteran players he trusted more, as most managers do. Um, but I'll tell you, uh, principals caring trust uh, when you were when he trusted you he used you you know and it took him a while I remember the first time uh, he called me in to let me know I made the team in Lakeland <clears throat> in the in his office and he said the first rule is uh, I don't want you talking to the media for a month he and that was his way of telling me watch learn and listen and I was around Tram and, and Daryl Evans and all those guys on how they treated the media. And it was a it was Sparky's way of saying, this is how you're going to learn to be a big leader. You're going to watch and learn. It was tough to tell people, I can't talk to you. And there were some things, you know, rookie things that they, uh, they wanted to know about that I talked about. But he didn't want me getting into any anything that was going to be controversial in the game. <laughs> so Right, right. We got... We got- champions all over this clubhouse so we, we don't need you saying something opposite of world champion alan trammell yeah they're they're everywhere they, you guys the tigers won in 84 you're there in uh 88 what's it, what's it like walking into a clubhouse where there's world series rings everywhere yeah so 
my first uh, big league camp with Detroit was 87. Uh, not a great experience. I didn't make the team. Got sent out. And um, and then the next year I made the team. But the, the 87, uh, 87 spring training experience was uh, really good because um, I got to be around guys. So when I got there in 88, I knew I knew everybody. <clears throat> the only guy that was gone from the '87 to '88 was Kirk Gibson, but guys like Doyle Alexander, Frank Tanana, Jack Morris, Jack and I stay in touch to this day. That relationship didn't start out great. Uh, Jack and I, Jack wanted to do the rookie treatment, and uh, it it didn't start out great. But uh, once we once we start to understand each other, it, it got good, and I learned a lot from him. Still trying to get him to come over here and teach some of our guys his split finger, but so is is that situation walking into that that Tiger team? Um, is that the the perfect situation because there there is so much championship pedigree, or uh, is everyone so set in their ways? Maybe the uh, open embraces and follow my leads aren't as plentiful. Yeah, so that team was interesting in the respect that they won everything in 84, and it was, you know, a lot of people think it was a runaway, but Toronto was right on their butt for a while. I think they were 35-5, and five and Toronto was 28-10 and 10 at one point. But they had then lost to Minnesota in 87 in the playoffs, and you could start to sense that there was a little bit of question about who was going to be around much longer. Um and uh, not, I, want, I don't want to say there was any kind of panic because Sparky never really let anybody panic about anything. But you could tell that there was starting to going to be some changes. Um, and we were certainly in a transition. 88, we competed really, really well until the end of the year. Uh, Boston ended up uh, putting a real good second-half push on. But 89 is when... People are starting to leave. Injuries started to creep in, um, and it was a big transition. So I, you know, being being around for those years, you could see the ebbs and the flows of what Major League Baseball is like with a with a franchise at that time that didn't spend a lot of money on free agents. So um, I, I feel blessed to have started my career there um, because it prepared me for other things in my life that that I could have never prepared for had I started in New York or L.A. or Chicago because the, the people, the coaches, the guys like Trammell and Darrell Evans, like I said, uh, Chet Lemon, guys like that, they just make a, an impression on you that you never forget. You mentioned the Mets rotation earlier. Uh, Doc Gooden, Brett Saberhagen, David Cohn, uh, the Long Island kid coming back to New York, the 92 Mets. What was that clubhouse like? So I got tra- if, I, if I stayed in Detroit one more year, I would have stayed there the rest of my life, no matter where I played, <coughs> because uh, we loved Farmington Hills, and uh, it was, it was, we were starting to, kids were starting to get into school. But if I had to get traded at that time, like New York was going to be home, right? Um, it didn't turn out to be the greatest experience in the world as far as how I performed. As a matter of fact, there were days where it was really bad. Uh, but just one of the pieces of the puzzle that helps me understand this great game uh, from a different lens of being in that city at that time. And But that team, 
there, there was a book written, and I forget who wrote it. I don't think it was uh, Verducci, but uh, the worst team money could buy. Um, they went out and they spent big. Eddie Murray, Willie Randolph, Dick Schofield, Saberhagen, they, they went out and got, moved Hojo to center field. Um, there was a lot going on, and then the pitching was the pitching, you know, and uh, one injury after another. Um, there was a lot, a lot of things that went on that year that didn't allow us to play very well, but uh, I, I enjoyed that organization. John Franco became a, a great friend that, that we still stay in touch with. I learned a lot on how to deal at, with things at home through John because he was a New Yorker about the same age, and he had dealt with a lot of it. Really good people, again, they just the, the New York lifestyle took the teammates in different directions every night, whereas in Detroit we all lived in one apartment complex or one condominium complex. One guy was heading to Manhattan, one was Staten Island, one was Long Island, one was Connecticut. It was spread out right away, so it was a quite a bit different experience and then coupled with the fact that that team had I don't know I think there were 10 or 12 new players on the 25-man roster so it was a little catching up to do right from the beginning so then to the other New York team uh, I know you were you were in the building the the 1978 World Series you were there as a fan now you're at Yankee Stadium you're putting on the pinstripes uh, look, even though I grew up uh, raised to detest the New York Yankees, I mean, it's the pinstripes. It's, it's Mickey Mantle. It's Joe DiMaggio. Uh, how do you describe that time? Crazy, crazy special. Um, you, you can't even describe it. I started as a Yankee fan when I was really small. And then when Tom Seaver started to, to – uh, emerge in 69 I sort of grasped onto the Mets but I was it was Yankees Mets Mets Yankees all the time you know in the house uh the whole family of baseball fans and uh I could never imagine how special it was to put on a Yankee uniform until I stepped into that clubhouse the first day there there's I, I don't even know how to describe when you come to the stadium via the subway and you're coming through all the concrete and all of everything and then all of a sudden there's the field it's just unbelievable and that was as a visitor when I was coming in being in that clubhouse that clubhouse had a eerie uh historical feeling to it like very very you felt like you were in some sort of cave the sound was always different in there and muffled in there than a than say this clubhouse here with the higher ceilings and whatnot um but you're reminded every day you can't go to the bullpen with, without going past all of the the monuments and plaques and uh in those days Thurman Munson's locker was still in the clubhouse so you walk past Thurman Munson's locker every day all of the people that worked around the stadium, the clubhouse guy, they were all there for the Mickey Mantles and the Whitey Fords and all of that, so you're reminded. And they show up in spring training and the tradition and all that stuff. So it's it, there's, it's really hard to even put into words what that feeling is, especially being a New York guy, you know, right. growing up there. Did you ever hear the legendary voice of Yankee Stadium, Bob Shepard, say your name? Were you able to... Uh, catch it even though you're so 
zoned in coming out of the bullpen. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah that was uh, that. And walking off the field to New York, New York is like you know you just like that's what you that's what you know. And that '94 team, uh, prior to the strike, and you were the uh, team player rep. Uh, you you guys had to think you, you, you had a chance to 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 win it all. Yankees would go on to win in '96. Uh, hadn't won in what 13 years going into that '94 season. We were uh, we had the second best record in baseball. Uh, Montreal and in, in the National League had the best record, and we had the best record, and we were rolling. I think I think we had a six six or seven game lead in August, and uh, and I'll tell you, you talk about just getting after it every day. Bunch of guys that you probably you know Pat Kelly and Mike Gallego and guys like that that you don't Velarde, guys that you don't you know you don't remember the name until you're reminded of it. They could play baseball. You know, and uh, the way that Boggs and Mike Stanley and Mattingly and all these guys went about their business, it was just like you just fell in line and it just it was just going. Really, you know, we've, we, you know, you feel cheated a little bit at the end of the day because of how the whole thing went down uh, to, to be a part of that um, experience that we more than likely would have been. Um, and I feel for for Donnie the most on that because um, uh, the next year they they made the playoffs, but it wasn't. I don't think it was the same kind of thing. And maybe Don Mattingly is the answer to this question, but but who from your career? Because we've seen lately uh, the the veterans committee start to honor more players uh, from the '80s: uh, Trammell, Morris, Baines, uh, Ted Simmons, and others. Um, who, who from your career do you feel deserves more recognition uh, for their careers than, than, than maybe they have since hanging it up? Well, as far as teammates go, it's Lou Whitaker. Um, Bill Ajoy, the former uh, general manager uh, for the Tigers when I was there, and he's passed on now. But I ran into him scouting one day, and I asked him, to compare Lou Whitaker to Robinson Cano. And he said, tools-wise, it wasn't close. Lou Whitaker had better tools. So that's the kind of player Lou was, and a lot of people don't realize because Lou had a personality that didn't necessarily make you feel warm. (laughs) Um, As far as opponents, uh, it's a crying shame that Fred McGriff is not in the Hall of Fame. Uh, That one I don't understand at all. Uh, the things that he did. Um, so those are the two that really stand out. Final thing, um, wh- whether it's hometown, here in Kansas City, uh, nationwide, what mark do you hope to leave on this game with the, 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 the pitchers that you work with, the men and women that you work with? Yeah, uh, you know, I uh, I can't put into words how um, how incredible a place this is to to and I don't even call it work it's not work um, and uh, so Dayton's message our vision as a group um, it's a it's it's a it makes me feel really good about having being able to to be around these players the players set the tone for the culture we 
we adapt and try to move them in their direction to help them gain time, gain ground in their career. Um, but this is really a special, this is a, a great part of my life right now to be able to, to be around so many, uh, good people, uh, on this coaching side, the front office side and all that, but especially the players. And, you know, so <clears throat> in 2014 and 15, as a scout, I sat in the stands and it, to listen to this fan base, uh, was a great feeling because it's not anything that I ever experienced as a player. That's first of all. But I also look at that group, and uh, I wasn't here when Hosmer got drafted. I wasn't here when when uh, Moose got drafted or signed, you know the the Granky thing or any any of those trades. I came shortly after that. I I I feel really good when we get somebody to the major leagues, and I'm going to feel even better when they make that impact as a group uh, we're starting to see it a little bit they certainly have things to learn and get better at as does the next group and the group after it but for me that's the reward that's the reward of it paul very generous with the time i appreciate it thank you awesome thank you this is burns hot stove thursday night starting at six on your home for royals baseball in kansas city 610 sports radio Burns Hot Stove back with you live from Surprise Stadium in Surprise, Arizona, site of Royals. What are we calling it? Minor League Early Camp? I don't know. My apologies to uh, listeners, uh, not, not resetting enough, letting you know that that was indeed Royal Senior Director of Pitching Paul Gibson. Originally sat down with him earlier this week, was hoping to have that as a podcast and bring you guys the best of because big league baseball is back but alas here we are no big league baseball and you just caught that entire conversation with paul gibson uh if you are around my age and grew up a baseball fan man i hope you enjoyed that as much as i did uh a a few things i I promised you at the beginning of the show that i would mention the other names that are standing out to me Uh, first of all no one has impressed me more now, this doesn't mean he's going to be a, a big leaguer necessarily. Maybe turns out that the 26-year-old catcher out of Venezuela, Freddie Fermin, I wish this team had 100 Freddie Fermins. He is just a ball player. Uh, he's going to be a great coach. He'll be a great man in this game for years to come. But a lot of young talent, uh, Dominican talent. Wilman Candelario, the 20-year-old shortstop. Loved what I saw from him. Eduardo Garcia, the 20-year-old third baseman. Diego Hernandez, the 21-year-old center fielder. Uh, Three names there. Annie Rogers of MLB.com was raving about the curveball of last year's first-round pick, Frank Mazzucato. I'm still loving it. I wish I could talk more big league baseball with you. Recommend you listen to Whitten Merrifield's conversation on Cody and Gold. Find that at the Odyssey app or at 610sports.com. Julio Sanchez, thank you very much for your help. Bruce Weber is coming up next on 610 Sports Radio. Talk to you next week. You're listening to Vern's Hot Stove. Thursday night starting at 6 and available on demand on the Odyssey app. 610 Sports Radio. 
Listen to every MLB game live. The deep left center field, it is high, it is far, it is gone. Stream minor league affiliates. The Midwest League home run leader. And watch the best baseball highlights and look-ins on MLB Big Inning. MLB at bat is your all-in-one live baseball subscription for only $3.99 per month. Deep left field, it's going to go. Alvarez ties the game. Subscribe to at bat within the MLB app today. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission.